You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Chike Jeffers. Chike is an associate professor of philosophy at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada. He has cross appointments in Canadian studies and international development studies. He does research in philosophy of race, Africana philosophy, and ethics. He is also the editor of Listening to Ourselves, a multilingual anthology of African philosophy. This is part two of a two-part interview on Black thought. In this episode, we talk all about Black scholar W.E.B. Du Bois. Hello, Chike, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So Du Bois seems to be a, a main figure in Africana philosophy. So I want you to tell us more about W.B. Du Bois. Why do we claim him as a philosopher? Because the sociologists are also trying to claim him as well. And what are the contributions has W.B. Du Bois made to Africana thought? Great question. So the sociologists claim him with, with great justification. He is a, <laughs> he is a pioneer in sociologist. He's also, he, he also was a very accomplished historian. He was an accomplished journalist. He was a... Uh, you know, a groundbreaking uh, social activist. So he was many things. And so when we claim him as a philosopher, what we're doing is is pointing out that among those things was that he was a philosophical thinker, that is, someone who raised and sought to answer fundamental questions uh, about justice, about, uh, about ethics, about culture. Yeah, that's, that's, who he was, I mean, and I think it's, I think it's hard to read significant amounts of Du Bois and not recognize him as someone, uh, who, who, who thought philosophically and gave interesting answers to philosophical questions. You know, the contributions uh, that he made to Africana thought are many. Some of what he's most known for today, right, would be the, the notion of double consciousness. He's known for uh, the idea of the talented tenth. He's known for the dispute he had with Booker T. Washington. All of those are things that he, that he talks about in The Souls of Black Folk, his most famous book. What a lot of people know, but, but there's a lot more to learn and know about him. So let's, let's talk about one of those things that you kind of laid out, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Du Bois. What exactly is double consciousness? First of all, I would say that double consciousness is an interestingly evocative phrase, and that its popularity has a lot to do with that. I, I don't want to suggest that I don't think that Du Bois made uh, an interesting philosophical move when he kind of developed this idea, but he developed it under that name really only in one thing that he wrote and so i i do think that you know part of its great power in terms of the fact that lots of people cite it and and talk about it part of it has to do with the, the fact that that it ends up being flexible in various ways and you can even see this if you look at different interpretations that's just i guess a preliminary point this there's, there's a way in which it has a certain 
the, the, even the language that he's using when he's explaining it is flexible to the point that a lot of people are able to read into it what they would like to read into it, right? I mean, my own uh, particular reading would be that double consciousness is a matter of being black in a majority white society and being, as a result of that, very conscious of how black people look from the outside, right? When explaining it with students, I often give the example that, you know, watching the news sometimes, if there's reports of, say, a, you know, a, a violent crime, a shooting or a stabbing or, or, or a robbery or uh, something of that sort, it is often the case that a black person watching the news will begin to hope that it wasn't a black person, right? Right, right. You know, the person who did it, right? This is... This is something that is extremely common, and it's, of course, interesting to talk about this with students because we talk about the fact that this is not very common for white people, right? They don't hear about violent crimes or, or crimes of any particular kind and start wishing and praying that it's not a white, right? Despite the fact that they clearly perpetrate, right, the majority of crimes as they are the majority of people yeah. in society. And so the, the reason for that, right, has to do with a kind of sense of how people getting more reason, so to speak, to view black people as violent, as, as criminals, etc., has an impact on your life, right? More people buying into that stereotype may affect your life chances in particular ways, right? And that's the reason that you are extra conscious of that outside view of that non-black view upon black people, right? I think that's what is central to double consciousness, first of all, but in the passage where he talks about double consciousness, he also uses this term tunis. And once you get to the term tunis, then beyond just the kind of thinking about how you look from the outside part of the situation, he's also talking there about what we tend to call today hybridity. Uh, I often then, you know, talk about term African American, which wasn't in common usage at the time that he wrote that, nevertheless is, is very useful for, for looking at what he's saying about how there's a a divide, a tunis that the American Negro uh, is trying to reconcile, right? And because what he goes on to say is that he wouldn't want to give up the American part, he wouldn't want to try and leech away the African part, he wants this to somehow fit into a whole, right? So it's the idea that, you know, how can you be both African and American, right? How can you both be an American and, and a Negro, right? Like this shouldn't actually be something that's, that is hard to fit together, because African Americans are among the oldest portions of the uh, the American population, right? But but he's talking about the fact that it can feel that way. It can feel as if somehow these don't go together. So those are the two dimensions that it would probably be most important to highlight when thinking about double consciousness, right? The uh, the sense of looking at oneself from the outside and the sense in which one's identity is made tense by the fact that one can't ignore being different, right? But on on the other hand, can't ignore being American as well, right? So how does that fit together? And he's trying to push towards the idea that this could one day fit together as, as a comfortable whole. It's the election season in, in the States, and you have the Republicans and, and the Democrats. It seems to be, and this has been the case since Obama got on the scene, with Obama advocating education. The First Lady, Michelle Obama, just came out with a video from Comedy Central, talking about go to college. Yeah. And then on one end, you have the Republicans criticizing this this notion, right? You know, the, the popular thing that happened recently in debate was we need more welders and less philosophers, mm. right? right? So this reminds me of the very popular 20th century debate between Du Bois and Booker T. So I want to ask you, 
who do you think got it right, the boys or Booker T? And what do you think can we learn from that today? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, I guess it's maybe not a surprise given that I write about him a lot and think about him a lot that I side with two boys. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I do. And, you know, one thing I'll say first, though, is to talk about Washington and just to give what I'd like to also say about its re- the relevance of his view. I actually think that what's most important in terms of understanding Washington is gaining historical perspective, yeah. right? I think that Washington was what is called an accommodationist. So you have at this time in uh, the U.S., particularly in the South, it's after the time of Reconstruction where there had been black political participation. Right? That has been squashed through various means by the Southern state. And then there are all of the other aspects of segregation that people are familiar with, separate facilities, things of that sort. Right. And Washington is called an accommodationist because his reaction to that is to say, well, don't push for political power at this time. Right. Uh, don't push for full civil rights in terms of, you know, being able to use the facilities you want and things of that nature. Concentrate on learning practical skills, stuff like agriculture, trades like carpentry and so on. Learn this practical stuff and build up your economic base. You, and you build your economic base, you will eventually get to point at which this capitalist country that is America will simply have to recognize your power, right, as an economic force. And so that the other stuff will come, right, the the the, the equal rights in the political sphere, in the social social sphere, so to speak. So that will come later. And insofar as many people today would have a, a negative reaction to the idea that you should allow your your rights to be taken away and not fight back would have maybe also depending on their educational path a negative reaction to the idea that you should focus solely on these so-called practical things rather than the kind of higher education that would make you a doctor a lawyer a philosopher then i think that you know it's useful to to help people understand the ways in which washington was was saying things that you know made sense in important ways in that context right given the fall in, in terms of power from uh, the end of reconstruction right there's a lot of practicality to his view that, that's worth understanding now, Du Bois, representing the alternative view, believes that you cannot wait for your rights to come later. Right? You have to press now for full political and civil rights. Uh, and he also pushed back against the emphasis on so-called practical or industrial education and, and championed a higher education. Not, you know, not saying that everybody would be suited for higher education, but that, you know, that there should be black colleges that provide that, right? And so one thing that I'll, that I'll say about chapter three of The Souls of Black Folk, where Du Bois makes his argument, I think that it's a fascinating piece of political philosophy. And one of those moments where it's, it's hard to see how someone could deny that Du Bois is a philosopher, because part of what he does is make what we call internal critiques of Washington's view, right? Where you where you kind of accept a certain basic premises of your opponent and show how, on the basis of those very premises, their conclusion fails. And so, for example, Du Bois argued that, that Washington is misunderstanding how politics and economics works because the idea of building up your economic base 
while lacking political rights, means that you lack the ability to protect your economic power from political attack, right? If you don't have a say in, in the political system, then it's possible for laws to be passed, for example, that will make it hard for you to build up your economic power, right? And then um, also he made the point that what Washington was encouraging was this sense of self-reliance, right? Confidence in black people's ability to do for themselves. And, you know, Du Bois argues the kind of acceptance of inferiority that goes along with just accepting, for example, that you, you have used this different water fountain and you can't use the same bathroom, etc., etc. The various ways in which segregation kind of, you know, made clear that black people were inferior and, and pollutants of sorts, right? That that undermines kinds of self-confidence needed for the kind of self-reliance that Washington was arguing for, right? And he and he also makes certain an internal criticism of Washington on the issue of higher education, basically saying that even a place like Tuskegee, the uh, institution that, that Washington was the head of, it runs on the fact that you have people who've gone to higher education and thus teach there, right? And so at each turn, Right, he's arguing that Washington's own premises show the failure of his conclusions. So it's a really fascinating work, and, and I think that he makes lots of great points. Du Bois also wrote about black art and its uses. We mentioned musical artist Drake and The Weeknd earlier. So I, I wonder, what do you think Du Bois would say about black art, particularly black music today? In terms of black art, Du Bois is famous for arguing that, that we must see the propagandistic potential of art and not deny it. That is, we must see the, the way in which art can be used for political purposes, for the advancement uh, of black people. Not say that we can just, you know, be artists for artists' sake. Famous for these kinds of things. And so, you know, I think that Boisian look at black art today and black music in particular would, would first of all question so what is being done on that score, right? You know, in what ways are people using black music, for example, to uh, attain political and I think that two people can agree with Du Bois and come to very different conclusions, you know, in terms of their evaluation of, say, contemporary black music, right? So some may feel that, for example, a lot of the content of hip-hop would be serving black people badly, not making them look good because of various forms of hedonism, various forms of glorification and criminality, etc., etc. Others might read these things differently, right, and talk about the political implications of talking about selling drugs, of talking about black on black crime, so to speak. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of room for disagreement, and I, and I don't know that I want to predict what Du Bois himself would say, but I do think that he's right to, to make us consider, right, that, that all art, right, you know, ends up being political in some ways, because you may intend it to be apolitical, right, but in being apolitical, that's a form of political stance, right? He points us in the right direction in terms of uh, keeping that as, as at least one dimension of the ways in which we evaluate. We've spent some time talking about Souls of Black Folks, which is, I think, Du Bois' most popular work. Let's talk about some work that is not that popular. So let's first talk about Conservation of races. Yeah, so the conservation of races is, you might say, less popular in the sense that, you know, many people in many disciplines uh, who know a lot about Du Bois may not think of that essay as particularly important. Interestingly, in philosophy, it is the 
most important <laughs> work by Du Bois. You know, arguably significantly more important even than The Souls of Black Folk, right? As philosophy of race itself, as a kind of subfield, is greatly shaped by the work of Kwame Anthony Appiah, uh, and Appiah in the 1980s wrote about the conservation of races and inspired many people to also write about that piece. I myself have joined that tradition and published something in, in the journal Ethic in 2013 that was focused on the conservation of races. So it's interesting that in a way it's kind of the most popular work from a philosophical point of view, despite not being his most popular work overall when thinking from kind of any perspective. And why it's so important to philosophers is because of the fact that it's a partly about the question of what are races in the first place, right? It's asking that big metaphysical question, right? What is a race? And then the other thing that ends up making it interesting is that Du Bois is clearly trying to go against the grain of the kind of biological essentialism common the 19th century. He's arguing that races are, first and foremost, social and historical groups. Now, Appiah, in his first work on conservation, critically examines the extent to which Du Bois has, has successfully managed to develop a socio-historical concept of race. And Appiah in that piece argues that, that Du Bois fails, that he ends up falling back upon a biological essentialism, right? But others have disagreed, right, and, and argue that, that he does um, develop a, a useful socio-historical concept of race in that piece. So this is, these, these are the kinds of debates that the conservation of races has produced. So let's talk more about some obscure work, Wither. You have written about that. Why is that work significant for you? Yeah, so Wither, Now, and Why is a piece that he wrote very late in life. Um, so, you know, one of the impressive things about Du Bois is that he lived to be 95 and was productive uh, for most of his life, so I want to be just like him. Yeah, uh, so like a good, you know, there's a good seventy-five years or so during which he was like a fascinating thinker. His autobiography was published posthumously, so he was gone when that was published. And then, yeah, I mean, some of the work that is, you know, from very late, there's a significant amount of it that is uh, posthumously. Whether or not why comes from 1960. And he, he was giving a lecture to, um, I want to say social studies teachers, black social studies teachers at a conference at a black college. So why it's important to me is, first of all, I actually read it as a sequel to The Conservation of Races, uh, separated by 63 years, right? Because The Conservation of Races is from 1897. And so whether now and why I take to be a kind of interesting sequel to the conservation of races, right? And 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 what's interesting about the way that whether now and why starts out is Du Bois is acknowledging how legal equality is coming even faster than he expected. So this is after uh, Brown versus Board of Education. King has been very active at this point, right? And uh, and Du Bois is foreseeing what would come within a few years, right? Because by 1964, you have the Civil Rights Act. By 1965, you have the Voting Rights Act. Right? So he's foreseeing the coming of legal equality. And, and he's arguing that this does not somehow put to rest the questions of what it means to be African American. And, and it doesn't mean that, 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 that now everything is going to be okay. Right? And part of what he is arguing for in that piece 
is to preserve the, the cultural distinctiveness of African Americans and, and preserve their, their sense of being tied to the rest of the black world. And so there's a, there's a cultural nationalism and, and a pan-Africanism that he's arguing for there, which he had already been arguing for back time of the conservation of races. And in both pieces, right, he's suggesting that we need to press for full political, economic, social equality. But part of what we also, part of what black people also need to be doing, right, is understanding that they do not just bring to the table another set of humans. They bring a distinctive experience and a distinctive cultural background to the table, right? And that there is tragedy if that is law. And so that's an interesting, you might say, tension, but a productive tension that I see as kind of a major thing running throughout Du Bois's work. The idea that we need to, you know, be integrated, basically, you know, on a political and economic plane, in certain important ways, on the cultural plane as well. But it's important to him that gaining equality, which is to say, making race less of a dividing thing from the sense of, in, in the sense of who has which opportunities, it's important to him that this need not mean losing diversity. He thinks that race, when understood as cultural diversity, is actually a really important and productive thing, you know, a positive thing, a thing to value, right, rather than something that we should be seeking to transcend. What is the most powerful statement that you've ever read from Du Bois? Kind of situation where I'm actually just going to sort of pick at random, you know, not not at random among every sentence he wrote, but I mean, you know, in terms of trying to, you know, just pull one to mind. So there's um, a chapter called uh, Faith of the Fathers in the Souls of Black Folk. And if if you go to that chapter and you read that whole chapter, the very last sentence, I think, is is fascinating to read from our point of view in history. I'm not going to be able to repeat it, but, you know, it's easy to find the Souls of Black Folk. Bartleby.com, I think, is the thing that, that where, where you can just pull it up, up very easily. And so, so I, I would encourage, you know, someone to, to read that chapter because you, to get the full force of it, you have to have read the chapter, but it's, almost eerie the way that it's a kind of prediction of how the civil rights movement would go, about how the black church would end up kind of at the forefront of political struggle. Basically, it's a sentence that just screams Martin Luther King. Uh, and part of, part of what's funny about it in context is that he's been in some ways criticizing the political effectiveness of the black church earlier on in the piece, right? And and it's kind of a hopeful thing that he says at the end. And so it's just one of these moments where, you know, I mean, people point out how he, he you know, he has this famous line, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. Right? And people talk about the prophetic nature of that line. And so I guess to give a different example of how he was apparently prophetic. That the, the, yeah, the, the closing of, uh, of I think it's I think it's chapter ten uh, is of the faith of the fathers. The way in which he sees the potential that the black church has, and and the way in which that ended up being such an important part of how things actually went. It connects to another interesting thing that someone said, uh, and now I'm talking about Roy Wilkins, who was the head of the NAACP at the time of his death. Du Bois died on the day before the March on Washington, right? So he died the day before King gave famous I Have a Dream speech, right? And his death was announced at the march. And when Wilkins announced it, one thing that he said was that if you want to 
understand what brought you here today, go and buy a copy of The Souls of Black Folk, right? So, in other words, he, he was saying at that time, here's a, a 60-year-old book, um, but if you want to understand why you're here and what our purpose is, you can't really do better than to go get that 60-year-old book, right? And and I so I think that... that uh, is symbolic of Du Bois's relevance, and and so here we are now. It's about 112 years old, I think, and uh, continue to find it uh, important and relevant, and and to find his thought as a whole important and relevant. And one thing that I'll also throw in here, in case I don't get any other chance to say it, is that I'm going to be writing uh, my first book that's just by me, right? Not an edited collection, but uh, yeah, it will be um, it will be called Du Bois. It will come out in the series The Rutledge Philosophers, uh, and so it'll be a philosophical introduction to Du Bois. I'm very happy that that's going to be my uh, my first book. Oh, nice. Congrats. Thank you. Shike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.